This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship. Just starting or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And Tracy, before we get to the show today, we have a little business to talk about an upcoming live show. We uh, were lucky enough to be invited to participate in Great Conversations at Gettysburg, uh, which is a series of programs uh, that they have there that draw on the themes of Gettysburg. And that's going to take place on June 29th, 2019 uh, at the Rupp House History Center. And it's free. You can just go see us chat. There is cool programming going on all day long that day. We are going to have uh, our live podcast, which is called Fearless, Feisty, and Unflagging, The Women of Gettysburg at 4 p.m. But if you're up for a, a day of interesting history, there is a, a lot of other stuff to check out that day. So come and see us. Uh, so now to the topic at hand. This year is the 100th anniversary of the wave of racist violence in the United States that came to be known as Red Summer. And we talked about this just a little bit in our 2015 episode on the Harlem Hellfighters. But that was a long time ago, and it was just like a little bit in part three of the episode, not really enough to do it justice. And honestly, it was a whole summer you could do an entire podcast just on this. But with the 100th anniversary, it seemed like a good time to return to it. Uh, In a lot of ways, the violence of Red Summer was a response to two earlier and sometimes overlapping events, and those were the Great Migration and the return of Black soldiers who had fought in World War I to the United States. And to be clear, neither of these things caused Red Summer. Red Summer was a backlash to them. These returning veterans and migrating families were not to blame for what happened, But since this is part of the historical context, today's episode is going to start off with a little bit about those two events before getting into the violence that stretched through the summer and fall. And in case it is not clear, this episode includes a lot of violence, including sexual violence. Some of it is just particularly horrifying in nature. The Great Migration was a mass relocation of Black Americans out of the South and into the cities in the North and Midwest. It peaked in the mid to late 19-teens, but the same pattern of migration continued for decades afterward. There was also migration within the South from rural areas into southern cities. 
Most of the people who were moving had been sharecroppers, doing essentially the same work as their enslaved ancestors had done, sometimes even on the same land and for the same landowners. Sharecroppers rented the land that they lived and worked on, and then they paid their rent by giving a share of their crop to the landowner. But it was almost impossible to make a decent living as a sharecropper. Many sharecroppers were in debt to their landlords, owing money for things like the tools and supplies that they needed to do their jobs. Unscrupulous landlords could make this situation much worse. But even if a person's landlord was honest and fair, a sharecropper often earned a subsistence-level living at best. Sharecroppers faced the same threats to their livelihoods as any other farmer did, including pests and bad weather and fluctuating prices. The boll weevil, which had been introduced to the United States in the late 1800s, spread farther and farther into cotton territory in the 19-teens, destroying the crop as it went. And then in 1915, widespread flooding affected many of the same areas that had just been ravaged by weevils. As the Southern economy shifted after the Civil War, white farmers had also been caught up in this same system of sharecropping. It was exploitive regardless of who was doing the farming, but the system was stacked most heavily against black sharecroppers, who faced the additional hardships of systemic discrimination and racism, including segregation, political oppression, and racist violence. In the 19-teens, Black Southerners started hearing about new opportunities and a potentially better life in the North and the Midwest. This included jobs with better wages and better educational opportunities for their children. People heard about these opportunities through word of mouth from friends or family who had already moved. Word also came through advertisements placed by businesses and organizations that were hoping to attract new workers to their area. After the United States entered World War I, some of these jobs were specifically connected to the war effort. Between 1914 and 1920, roughly 500,000 Black Americans left the South and moved to urban areas elsewhere. In 1920, Emmett J. Scott described it this way, quote, They were in the frame of mind for leaving. They left as though they were fleeing some curse. They were willing to make almost any sacrifice to obtain a railroad ticket, and they left with the intention of staying. This led to labor shortages in the South, and sometimes entire communities were abandoned. It also dramatically shifted the racial demographics of cities like Detroit, Chicago, New York, and Philadelphia. We'll be returning to that shift in just a bit. The United States became involved in World War I as the Great Migration was happening, and the war directly affected the nation's Black citizens as well. After the United States declared war on Germany in 1917, people were eager to enlist in the military. This included at least 20,000 Black men who volunteered in April and early May. This actually presented a problem for the military, though. The Marines didn't accept Black recruits at all. The Navy and the Coast Guard technically did, but only in menial roles. So overwhelmingly, Black men were serving in the Army, which at least in theory accepted Black men in most areas of the service. In practice, though, the Army was racially segregated, with only a very few all-Black units in existence at that time. So after the declaration of war on Germany, the Army reached its quota for Black recruits in just about a week. In May of 1917, Congress passed the Selective Service Act, which required men, regardless of race, to register for the draft. The Army began creating new all-Black units and trained one class of Black officers at Fort Des Moines in May of 1917, sending most Black officer candidates after that point to train at camps in Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Hawaii, or Panama. 
Ultimately, about 370,000 Black men served in the U.S. Army in World War I. These men faced persistent discrimination during their service. All Black units were often assigned to menial work, like digging trenches and unloading cargo and removing unexploded ordnance. And while it's true that this was all work that needed to be done and somebody had to do it, disproportionately, the people doing the Army's hardest, dirtiest, and most degrading work were Black. Black soldiers also experienced day-to-day harassment and discrimination throughout the war. There's more about all this in that past episode about the Harlem Hellfighters. Support for participation in the war wasn't universal within the Black community. One line of thought was that it made no sense for people to put their lives on the line for a country that, at best, treated them as second-class citizens. This was especially true because the United States had framed its involvement in the war as making the world safe for democracy. So it seemed hypocritical to fight for a country that was refusing to do the same within its own borders. But many civil rights leaders and organizations really took the opposite stance, arguing that this was a chance for Black citizens to demonstrate to the rest of the nation that they were human beings and patriots worthy of respect, who were actively making a positive contribution to the nation. The experience of military service during the war motivated many of these soldiers to actively fight for equal rights after they returned home. W.E.B. Du Bois described it this way in the NAACP's magazine, The Crisis. Quote, We are returning from war. The crisis and tens of thousands of Black men were drafted into a great struggle. For bleeding France and what she means and has meant and will mean to us and humanity and against the threat of German race arrogance, we fought gladly and to the last drop of blood. For America and her highest ideals, we fought in far-off hope. For the dominant Southern oligarchy entrenched in Washington, we fought in bitter resignation. In this editorial, Du Bois went on to describe the United States as a shameful land, saying that it lynches and disenfranchises its citizens, encourages ignorance, and steals from and insults Black citizens. He concluded by saying, quote, We return. We return from fighting. We return fighting. Make way for democracy. We saved it in France, and by the great Jehovah, we will save it in the United States of America or know the reason why. James Weldon Johnson, who coined the term Red Summer, described it this way in his 1933 autobiography, quote, The colored people throughout the country were disheartened and dismayed. The great majority had trustingly felt that, because they had cheerfully done their bit in the war, conditions for them would be better. The reverse seemed to be true. Earlier civil rights advocacy had tended toward a conciliatory approach, but after the war, Du Bois and other civil rights leaders were increasingly direct, lobbying very aggressively for equal rights legislation and for anti-lynching laws. This advocacy became part of what came to be known as the New Negro Movement, which was rooted in assertiveness and confidence and was also connected to the Harlem Renaissance. Membership in the NAACP really surged from about 9,000 members before the war to 100,000 afterward. Compounding that, many of the people who moved from the South did not find the North to be what they imagined it to be. Many schools, neighborhoods, and public accommodations were still segregated by custom, if not by law. Many industries were closed to Black workers, and many of the ones that weren't involved manual labor or service work. Discrimination and harassment may have been less overt in some ways, but they were still there. All of this folded back into that growing advocacy for equal rights and equal treatment. So it was a whole 
system in which people who had moved or people who had come back from war or people who had done both of those things were finding themselves still facing all of this discrimination. And then simultaneously, people of all races in the United States were competing for scarce jobs and housing immediately after the war. The first Red Scare was going on, and that created a climate of fear of communism and Bolshevism. Also, immediately after the war, the nation was very nationalistic and xenophobic. And all of this together fed into this backlash that came to be known as Red Summer. We'll start talking about how it unfolded after a sponsor break. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. The two main hallmarks of Red Summer were lynching and mass violence against whole communities of Black residents, which were often described as race riots. These weren't unique to 1919. The same types of violence happened before and after Red Summer. But during that summer and fall of 1919, both were really at a peak. And although the Great Migration that we just talked about was from the South into urban parts of the North and Midwest, these incidents happened all over the country. However, details are hard to track down for some of these incidents today. At the time, they were often reported in both black and white newspapers, although with completely different interpretations of the events. The NAACP and other civil rights organizations also conducted investigations into as many of them as they could, but often there was no formal investigation by law enforcement and no official record of what actually happened. Especially when it came to mob violence, some communities conducted investigations later on or convened truth and reconciliation commissions to document what happened and make recommendations for restitution. But in cases where that didn't happen, at this point, the people who remember the events have since died, so many details are lost. So we're going to start with this pattern of lynching. A lynching is an extrajudicial murder of someone who has been accused of a crime or some other perceived wrongdoing. 
Anyone can be the victim of lynching, although most often in the United States, lynching victims have been members of a racial, ethnic, or religious minority. In the United States in the early 20th century, most victims of lynching were Black Americans or white Americans who had been working for civil rights. In 1919, there were 83 recorded victims of lynching, at least 11 of whom were veterans of World War I. That was up from 64 in 1918. Victims of lynching had often been accused of a crime against a white person, especially a white woman. Sometimes a crime really had taken place, but in other cases, the allegations were completely fabricated. Regardless of whether anyone had committed a crime, the idea of a crime was used as justification for murder. It was often the idea of a white woman having been allegedly assaulted by a black man, something we talked more about in our two-parter on the 1898 Wilmington coup. In one of Red Summer's first incidents, a black man named Benny Richards allegedly shot his ex-wife and her sister on May 2, 1919. His ex-wife died, and Richards also allegedly wounded the sheriff and other white men who arrived on the scene. We have to say allegedly, because Richards was not brought to trial. Instead, a mob of between 100 and 300 white men apprehended him, in part by dumping gasoline into the swampy area surrounding his home and setting fire to it to try to drive him out. After they captured Richards, the mob hanged him, shot his body, and set it on fire. This was not a remotely isolated incident, and it was part of a pattern in terms of what happened and how it played out. On May 14th in Vicksburg, Mississippi, a mob of between 800 and 1,000 people broke into the jail and took 22-year-old Lloyd Clay out of his cell. Clay had been accused of assaulting a white woman named Maddie Hudson. She had been presented with a lineup earlier in the day, and two different times she had said that Clay was not the man who assaulted her. But after the mob removed him from his cell, they asked her one more time to identify him as her assailant, and she did. The mob poured oil over Clay's head and hanged him over a bonfire while also shooting him repeatedly. On May 24th, 72-year-old Barry Washington was in jail in Milan, Georgia. Two white men had reportedly come into his neighborhood and tried to assault two teenage girls. Washington had tried to defend them and had killed one of the men in the process. A local Baptist minister led a mob of roughly 100 white men who abducted Washington from the jail, hanged him, and shot him repeatedly. The mob then terrorized the area's Black residents and looted Black-owned businesses. On June 17th, a white mob in Longview, Texas, murdered Lemuel Walters. According to reports in white newspapers, he had robbed the home of a white woman and assaulted her. But according to an article in the Chicago Defender, Walters and this woman had been having a consensual relationship. There was a riot in Longview shortly thereafter, which started with a white mob assaulting a black journalist that they believed had written this article in the Chicago Defender and then burning down his home. On June 26th, a mob lynched John Hartfield of Ellisville, Mississippi, on the grounds that he had, according to them, raped a white woman. His family members and friends maintained that it was because he had a white girlfriend. This lynching was announced ahead of time on the front page of the Jackson Daily News under the headline, John Hartsfield will be lynched by Ellisville mob at 5 o'clock this afternoon. On August 28th, a mob dragged Eli Cooper out of his home in Cadwell, Georgia. 
This mob's rationale is not clear. In some accounts, he had made a pass at a white woman. In others, she had made a pass at him. A newspaper report from the time said, quote, he had been talking for some time in a manner that was very offensive to the white people of the community in which he resided. He was either hanged or shot in a church, and then his body was set on fire. A few days later, a mob in Bogalusa, Louisiana, killed veteran Lucius McCarty, who had been accused of trying to rape a white woman. His assailants shot him hundreds of times before dragging him behind a car and burning his body. On September 29th and 30th, three black men were lynched in Montgomery, Alabama over the span of about 12 hours. A mob abducted Ralius Pfeiffer and Robert Krosky as they were being transported to jail after being accused of assaulting a white woman. Pfeiffer was a veteran and was reportedly in uniform at the time. The mob shot both Pfeiffer and Krosky, and then in a separate incident, an officer tried to arrest Will Temple and two other people for disorderly conduct. Temple resisted arrest, fatally shooting the officer and being injured himself in the process. A mob murdered him in his hospital ward. And these are, of course, just samples from the 83 recorded lynchings in the summer and fall of 1919. And there were certainly others that were not recorded. And the reason none of the perpetrators are named is that overwhelmingly, we do not know who they were. It was incredibly rare for the perpetrators of lynching to face any kind of criminal charges. Sometimes members of law enforcement were even part of the lynch mob. Occasionally, law enforcement offered a reward for information or tried to arrest perpetrators, but when that happened, the white community often reacted with outrage. Afterward, members of the mob frequently took souvenirs with them from the scene, as well as taking photos, which were later distributed as postcards. These were also not just some random haphazard actions. They were part of a pattern of really gruesome racist violence committed by the white community in order to terrorize, punish, and humiliate the black community. And in the minds of the perpetrators, quote, keep them in their place. The same was true of 1919's riots, which we will talk about after a break. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. There's a city far away. A fiction podcast. The richest, most powerful place on Earth. On an epic scale. Tuman Bay. Tuman Bay. Tuman Bay. A vast empire threatened by rebellion. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place or we will die too. The truth makes us strong. Tuman Bay is our destiny. 
history and fantasy collide. They are among us. Who? First a few, and now many. From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker. The only thing I ask of you is total and complete loyalty. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. hallmark of Red Summer was mass violence perpetrated by white mobs against Black people and the neighborhoods where they lived and worked. These incidents are often described as race riots, and that's a term whose meaning has shifted in various ways over the decades. But to many people, it suggests that people of two or more races were fighting against each other as equal aggressors, and that's really not what was happening during Red Summer. Often, Black communities did try to defend themselves or fight back, and occasionally Black residents went on the attack themselves. But overwhelmingly, even when this happened, the primary instigators were the white mob. As was the case with lynchings, these riots often followed some kind of crime or wrongdoing allegedly committed by a Black person, usually a Black man. But often these criminal allegations were completely false, or the response from the white community was way out of proportion to what had really happened. And in some cases, the perceived wrongdoing wasn't a criminal act at all. In Port Arthur, Texas, a riot followed objections to a black man smoking in a streetcar in front of a white woman. In multiple instances, the purported transgression was black veterans appearing in public in their uniforms. In one of the incidents that we're going to talk about in a moment, it was a response to sharecroppers trying to organize for fairer treatment. There were at least 26 documented examples of these riots between April and November 1919. You'll see numbers that range from like 24 to 30. It kind of depends on how people are defining the window of time and exactly what constitutes a riot. They definitely occurred in Arizona, Arkansas, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Nebraska, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. And we're going to talk about three of the most notorious. They have a lot of similarities, but they also illustrate the range of purported causes. Riots in Washington, D.C. followed rumors of an attack on a white woman and were largely carried out by soldiers and veterans. In Chicago, Illinois, riots followed a breach of the city's unofficial rules about segregation. And in Elaine, Arkansas, they followed black sharecroppers' attempts to organize. We will go chronologically, starting with the Washington, D.C. riot, which started on July 19, 1919. A black man had been detained and then released by Washington, D.C. police under suspicion that he had assaulted a white woman. The woman was a sailor's wife, which led servicemen, sailors, and veterans to try to seek revenge. Rumors about this incident spread through the city's saloons and pool halls, which were a popular hangout for returning veterans. Unemployment was a real issue, so as the rumors swirled, the people who heard them were mostly unemployed, intoxicated, and frustrated. Ultimately, a mob of about 400 men, many of them drunk, made their way southwest into Washington's majority Black neighborhoods, gathering up improvised weapons as they went. And some of them were still in uniform. 
This mob attacked Black residents indiscriminately, and police really did very little to respond. When local law enforcement did arrive, they mostly arrested the mob's Black victims rather than the white perpetrators. This first day of street fighting bled into more than four days of rioting, with mobs of soldiers and sailors attacking people on the street and Black residents fighting back. More than 150 people were physically attacked, and at least nine people died during the initial wave of fighting. But the situation quickly got worse. More than 500 firearms were sold in the city on July 21st as Black residents took up arms to defend themselves because the police were not, or in some cases to seek restitution for the earlier violence. At least 15 people were killed or mortally wounded just on the night of the 21st, 10 white and 5 black. President Woodrow Wilson finally deployed about 2,000 troops to try to restore order. By that point, though, the city had become so violent that people really thought that might not be enough. But the troops got help from a heavy rainstorm that drove many of the people who had been fighting back indoors. The riot ended on May 24th, by which point close to 40 people had been killed and hundreds injured. The riot ended on July 24th, by which point close to 40 people had been killed and hundreds injured. And then the Chicago riot started just days later on July 27, 1919, after an altercation at a swimming area. And the swimming area was not officially segregated, but local white residents thought of it as for their use only. First, there was an altercation on shore between black residents who wanted to use the swimming area and white residents who demanded that they leave. As this was happening, a group of boys was swimming from a raft and accidentally crossed into the whites-only part of the lake. Someone threw a rock at them and hit 17-year-old Eugene Williams in the head. He lost consciousness and drowned. The coroner's jury has a slightly different account, that he was not struck, but that because of the stones being thrown, he was forced to stay underwater until he was just too exhausted to keep swimming. When police arrived on the scene, white officers refused to arrest the man that black witnesses identified as the stone thrower. Increasingly angry crowds gathered at the lake, and then rumors started to spread through the city about exactly what had happened. And as rumors tend to do, they spiraled as they went. Eventually, a black man named James Crawford fired into a group of policemen and injured one of them. They returned fire and killed Crawford. This led to widespread violence throughout the city that lasted until August 3rd. 38 people were killed, 15 white and 23 black. 537 were injured. Of those, 195 were white and 342 were black. White mobs also burned down about 1,000 homes in Chicago's black neighborhoods. The Chicago police force was not at all effective at stopping this violence, in part because it was understaffed and in part because white officers were biased toward the white rioters. Eventually, 6,000 troops from the state militia were deployed to try to restore order, and then as had happened in Washington, they were helped by a sudden heavy rain. This wasn't quite as one-sided as many of Red Summer's riots. Many of the white residents who were injured or killed were in predominantly Black neighborhoods when it happened. Some were injured or killed when Black residents defended themselves. But others were white merchants or other business people who worked in Black neighborhoods and were attacked as people sought restitution for earlier violence. As it happened in the later days of the Washington, D.C. riot, an eye-for-an-eye mentality developed on both sides. 
The third riot we're discussing took place in Elaine, Arkansas, and it was more of a massacre than a riot. It started after Black sharecroppers started trying to organize for better pay. On September 30th, about 100 of them met with representatives of the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America. They met in a church in Hoopsburg, which was kept under armed guard during the meeting in the hope of preventing the kind of violence that had been so common over the previous months. In this part of Arkansas, Black residents outnumbered white about 10 to 1. And the white community found this inherently threatening. This kind of organizing effort was even more so, especially with the presence of armed guards. At about 11 p.m., some people fired into the church from outside, kind of in the shadows where the guards couldn't see them. The guards returned fire, and in the process, a white man named W.A. Adkins was killed At some point during all this, Phillips County Deputy Sheriff Charles Pratt was also wounded. In the minds of Elaine's white residents, this transformed the meeting from an implicit threat to an armed insurrection actively being planned. And it wasn't just rumor. The white press reported this supposed insurrection as a fact. Hundreds of white residents from around Phillips County traveled to Elaine to deal with the supposed threat, and local authorities asked the governor to deploy the National Guard. A mob burned down the church where the meeting had happened, and together, these vigilantes and the National Guard troops took hundreds of Black residents of Elaine into custody and held them in temporary stockades. This mob, over the next couple of days, killed at least 200 people. The official toll may have been much higher, but there wasn't a formal tally. Walter White, Assistant Secretary of the NAACP and past podcast subject Ida B. Wells-Barnett, each investigated what had happened in Elaine. Both found that the, quote, armed insurrection being hyped in the white press just simply did not exist. And if Elaine's Black community had been planning an armed insurrection, it seemed as though the death toll logically would have been much different. None of the white participants in this were ever tried for their roles in this massacre. Instead, 12 Black men were put on trial in the deaths of the five white people who were killed, During the trials, a white mob surrounded the courthouse and threatened to lynch the men if they were not given the death penalty. An all-white jury found them all guilty, and the judge handed down sentences of death for all of them. These 12 were not the only people who were set to stand trial. Another 65 accepted plea bargains after that first wave of convictions and sentencing. The NAACP backed a series of appeals that finally made their way to the U.S. Supreme Court as Moore versus Dempsey in 1923. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes authored the majority opinion that the defendant's constitutional rights had been violated. This was a major victory for the NAACP and for the civil rights of Black Americans in general. After being granted new trials, the 12 men were ultimately freed. Red Summer was not at all the end of racist violence in the United States. We have talked about similar riots and massacres that happened afterward on the show before, including the destruction of Greenwood, Oklahoma in 1921 and the massacre in Rosewood, Florida in 1923. But they didn't happen with the same frequency as they had during the Red Summer. We talked at the start of the show about all the factors that had primed the United States for all this violence. So that leads to the question of why did Red Summer end? The economy did start to improve. And especially when it came to mob violence, the onset of colder winter weather probably tempered things a little bit. 
But a lot of those other factors were still present or even growing. The Great Migration was still going on, and by the end of it, millions of people would have moved to cities. This general atmosphere of nationalism and xenophobia was still very present. A big part of it is that by the fall of 1919, the white majority had increasingly started to see these incidents as part of an unacceptable pattern. There had been elected officials and other civic leaders who had denounced the events from the very beginning, but these calls became louder and more frequent. Law enforcement officials started taking more steps to make sure that mobs couldn't just abduct people from the jail to lynch them. The white press also started toning down some of its rhetoric in terms of criminal allegations against Black residents. And then across the board, newspapers started taking a less sensationalistic and incendiary approach to discussing race-related violence. Civil rights organizations also started working toward building more positive relations between Black and white communities. For example, after the Chicago riot, the city established the Chicago Commission on Race Relations, which investigated the riot and made recommendations to prevent something similar from happening again. It published its report, The Negro in Chicago, A Study of Race Relations and a Race Riot, in 1922, which included not just a thorough investigation of the riot, but also of relationships between white and black communities in Chicago. Although not every riot led to this sort of investigation, there were other commissions and organizations that did the same types of work elsewhere in the United States. In other words, the violence didn't just play itself out. People actively worked to stop it. So that's sort of the highlights of... Highlights is not even a good word. That's, it's like lowlights. Yes, that's <laughs> sort of a a quick look at Red Summer. Like I said, this could be... There could be a whole podcast that would just be about Red Summer that would go on for many, many, many episodes because there were so many things that happened, but so many of them follow this exact same pattern in terms of, like, the precipitating event and then what transpired, the actions that this, like, white mob took, and then how things usually ended without any kind of formal acknowledgement or investigation. Do you have a little bit of listener mail? Yeah, I do, and it's uh, a little happier than what we've talked about today. This is from Kathleen. Kathleen says, Hi, you two. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Y'all have been such a source of joy, and I've learned so much over the years. I had to write in after the Julian of Norwich episode. I have a master's degree in theology, and she was such a source of comfort during graduate school. It was kind of funny listening to the episode because I could look around my living room and see quite a bit of Dame Julian's swag. I have a statue, a framed quote of All Shall Be Well, and an icon. I've attached a photo of the icon. Y'all covered so much great stuff about her. I was rooting Mother Christ, Mother Christ, and then you went there. I don't know about the historic veracity of it. I'm guessing it's just a legend, but there's some speculation that Julian's companion was a kitty. And so in the weird circles I move in, she has become the unofficial patron saint of cats. When my beloved cat died suddenly, the first thing I did was head to the bookstore at the Cathedral of St. Philip in Atlanta and purchase a statue of Julian cradling a cat in her arms. I have to say there are times when hanging out with a cat and only dealing with people through a window sounds like a life I can get on board with. When I saw the icon, I had to get it. It's Julian hanging out with a kitty who bears a striking resemblance to my cat, Francis, who's named after St. Francis, despite being the least saintly feline ever. I thought you might appreciate the kitty connection to my favorite mystic. Thank you so much for all your hard work on the podcast, Kathleen. Thank you so much, Kathleen. 
Uh, I had meant to get into cats a little bit in the podcast and then forgot it slash also had a lot of other stuff I wanted to make sure to get in there. Um, There are a lot of like stained glass windows that have Julian with a cat or depictions of Julian with a cat. She's associated with cats a lot. And that's one of those things that seems to be an association that developed later. Um, Like there's nothing in her writing or other people's accounts of her that mentions a cat. And that doesn't mean that she didn't have a cat. (laughs) It's just one of the many (laughs) things about her that's been sort of like uh, associated with her, even though we know very, very little about her personal life and how she lived. So thank you again, Kathleen. I also can totally see the appeal of just hanging out with a cat and not having people around. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're also all over social media at Mist in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter. You can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and you will find show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have ever worked on together, a searchable archive of every episode we have ever done. And you can also subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get a podcast. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier and Nick Turner, the host of Deckheads, and we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spin-offs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Home and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Home, a PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grinding and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Soma and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now.